but I'll encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. Last week we saw the providence of God in many ways. Many, many ways, as we have throughout this entire series, seen God's providence at work and his power made known. And we saw how God, upon sealing the covenant with circumcision, commanded Abraham to walk before him blameless. And we highlighted the, the, the difficulty that that proposes. Because we know that in our sinful human flesh, none of us can achieve blamelessness. However, in this, we pointed to the title which God used to present this command to Abraham as he presented himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai, the one who has all power to make all things come to be. And so it was that if Abraham was to walk in obedience to this command, he would have to walk in submission to the only one who could help a depraved sinner like himself walk blameless. And so from there, we saw Jesus echo this same standard in his Sermon on the Mount, where he says in Matthew 5.48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Showing us once again that the only way for us to be declared righteous before God is by grace through faith, and that if we grow in faith, that it is only through God's working in our life that we can grow in faith and be made holy. So there we saw our justification by grace through faith, and then we saw our sanctification, our making us holy and growing in faith, through God's working and us submitting ourselves to God's work in our life. And the only way that we can be justified and sanctified is if God provides the perfect sacrifice just as he provided the sacrifice for Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. And he provided that, that sacrifice for us in Christ. That if we would confess our sin and repent and believe, we can be saved. And so as we enter these last few sermons in the book of Genesis, we are going to highlight the patriarchs of the faith. We'll see the reason for us calling this part of Genesis, that is chapters 12 through 50, the patriarchal narratives. Because we've, we've highlighted and, and gone over one patriarch in particular exclusively to this point, that is Abraham. And we began to touch on Isaac last week, but Abraham we have really honed in on. Well, as we now expand and we prepare to, to draw to a close over the next couple of weeks, including this morning, we prepare to draw to a close for our time in Genesis We're going to see how through the patriarchs, God is purposefully working to bring about his plan to establish for himself a people who will make his name known among the nations by enjoying his grace and spreading the knowledge of his glory. And this begins right here in Genesis. What we see ourselves doing now begins right here in Genesis. The formation of us as the people of God begins with God setting apart for himself the patriarchs so that they would then pass the faith on and carry the faith on. Those men whom God used to carry on the faith by fulfilling his covenant promise in and through them. Now, this does not mean that these men were perfect. I think we've seen that to this point. Rather, this means that God chose them and fulfilled his covenant promise to them and used them despite their depravity. We see this in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And from Jacob would come the 12 tribes of Israel, which includes Joseph, whose story we will delve into as we wrap this series up. But this morning, we'll see how God's intentionality and purpose behind passing the covenant from one generation to the next is the very standard by which we are to pass on the truth of the gospel from one generation to the next. And so with that in mind, I'll ask you to go ahead and stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Genesis chapter 24. 
And we'll read verses 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who, you, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word this morning, as we continue to to look from chapters 24 to 28 of Genesis, and we see the passing on of generation to generation, your covenant faith, the standard of your word. And as we see the torch pass from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob, help us to see how you were working from the beginning to set apart for yourself a people that would declare your glory among all the nations from one generation to the next. And help this be the standard by which we set ourselves to, to share your gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So, you might have noticed we ended last week in chapter 22. And we picked up this week in chapter 24. So I want to do just a brief summary of what we see happen in chapter 23. So that we can then launch ourselves into this study of these four chapters here from chapter 24 to 28. So in chapter 23, we immediately see the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now to this point, Abraham and his people have been in the land for 62 years. It has been 62 years since he followed that call of God's word and God's word alone. They've been in the land for 62 years and yet have no permanent dwelling place. This is exactly what God had told Abraham at the sealing of the covenant. Now Abraham seeks out the people of the land. As his wife has passed away, he seeks out the people of the land so that he might purchase a place to bury his wife. Now Sarah died here in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. And here, specifically, she died in Hebron, which was dwelled and was ruled by the Hittites. So the Hittites recognize God's hand on Abraham and show him great respect. After some back and forth, Abraham purchases a field and a cave from Ephron, the Hittite. Now, why is any of this important? Because now... Abraham and his descendants are permanently tied to the promised land, just as God had intended for them to be. You see, church, even in death, God is working to accomplish his good purposes for his glory. Now, this brings us right up to our starting point for today as we begin to see God transitioning from Abraham onward. Because we know that Abraham is still in the flesh. We've seen him live in the flesh. We've seen him make mistakes. We've seen him grow in his faith. But he's still mortal. And so now we see in verse 1, we'll we'll look at there again, of chapter 24. So now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham, being old in age, verse 2 says to his servant, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. 
So this is one of those stories that I think if we're all honest at one point or another, if we've read through the book of Genesis or we're very familiar with the book of Genesis, we've all probably said, why did God inspire Moses to include this? Like it's a, it's a good story on its faith, uh, 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 on its face. A father wanting to, his son to be married and wanting to see his son married before he passes away or as his dying wish. And so he sends someone to go find his son a wife. But why include this story of a, of a frail and old Abraham sending one of his servants to find a wife for his son? What we read here is the same scene that plays out in the lives of Jacob and Joseph as they are laying on their deathbed. So it's most likely that this is not just simply a request of an older Abraham, but it's most likely that this is Abraham's deathbed wish. And so in just a little bit, we'll see a brief summary at the end of Abraham's life in chapter 25. And this is Moses simply doing a thematic telling of the story. And so the, even though we see Abraham on his deathbed here, we hear about some of the things that happened at the end of Abraham's life in a thematic way at the beginning of chapter 25. And so we read that Abraham was old in age. And so this too is a clear indication. It's a typical what would start a deathbed scene in the Bible. So a clear indication that he's on his deathbed. Then we're told that instead of asking for Isaac... He requests his top servant, who was the oldest, meaning he had been with him through everything. This servant has been with him. Because if you'll remember, Abraham came, Abram, when he was still Abram, came into the land taking with him many people. And so this servant is very similar to the role that we see Joseph later on come to play in Potiphar's house. As even though he's a servant, he's in charge of all the house and has freedom to go and do a, an errand for his master. So what happens next is no throwaway event. As he asks this servant first to place his hand under his thigh. Now this is an ancient tradition that is carried across many cultures and is in fact still in practice today, though you may not realize it, that when someone is asked to swear an oath that they hold an object of great importance. Just as a witness in a courtroom is traditionally asked to hold their hand on the Bible prior to swearing an oath to tell the truth. And so as Abraham is preparing to send this servant on this very important errand, he asks this servant to swear this oath and to do so by placing his hand under Abraham's, Abraham's thigh. And this placement is of significance. Not only is he there holding the very patriarch who God called, who God promised, who God equipped, and who God sealed his covenant with, but he asks him to place it under his thigh as a reference to the seal of the covenant. And so he's asking him to make this oath based on fulfilling the covenant. Abraham then asked the servant to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth. Now, on its first, we, that may not seem significant to us. I mean, this is Abraham's God. So the one who called him, made a covenant with him, the one true God, and has preserved him despite Abraham's depravity. So we would expect for Abraham to make an oath by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. But Abraham's not the one making the oath here. The servant is. This means that Abraham has set the standard for covenant faith not just among his immediate family, but among his entire household. He's holding his top servant to the standard of the covenant to fulfill it and help him in living out the covenant. So remember, Abraham left, like I said, in obedience to God's call with a sizable group of people that has to this point amassed to an even larger number of people. He's amassed large numbers of, of wealth and herds and we read in chapter 13, after Abraham leaves in obedience to God's call, that he was very rich in livestock and in silver and gold. And in fact, later in this chapter, as this very servant is explaining to someone how the Lord has blessed Abraham by making his name great and by giving him flocks and herds and silver and gold, 
male and female servants, camels and donkeys. So this isn't some little bitty group that Abraham is holding to the standards of covenant, but a sizable household. And the first thing that I want us to see this morning as we draw to the close of Abraham's journey on earth is that covenant faith is lived out in community. Now, you may notice I I borrowed this point from a few weeks ago, but what I want us to see and having a similar point even here many chapters later is the consistency of God's command of how God has created his covenant and relationship with him to be lived out, not just individually, but corporately. And so that is why we gather for corporate worship. That is why we gather around tables to study God's word together in community. From the beginning, we see God at work to create community or rather to recreate the community that was broken at the fall. See, our community with him first and foremost, but also our community with one another. And this comes with an inherent call to share of God's grace and goodness to those who are outsiders. Consider Abraham's original call. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very foundations of our faith, we see God purposing for his word to be lived out in the context of community. Is it personal by nature? Absolutely. However, just because our faith is personal does not mean it is to be lived out in isolation. God has always been about creating and unifying a people that would live united according to his word and according to his work of salvation. So this also brings us to the next point that is revealed in this interaction between a dying Abraham and his servant. As we see, we'll pick back up in verse 3. So he says that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Verse 4, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me in this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. So Abraham is very defiant and not wanting Isaac to return to the land from which he came. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took this, verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So then the servant says, but what if the woman is not willing to follow? As he said a while ago. And so Abraham answers in verse 8, that if she's not willing to follow, I will release you from this oath. But you must not take my son back there. So that's the third time Abraham is adamant that Isaac must not go back. In verse 9, the servant put his hand under Abraham's thigh and he swears this oath. So Abraham wants his servant to find Isaac a wife so that the covenant may carry on and the faith may continue as God has promised. See, this is what Abraham does. He recounts the original calling of God in the covenant of sending them away from the promised land. And so he is adamant that he does not want Isaac to return. Why? So that he can stay in the land that he is supposed to be in. This is why his foremost demand to the servant was that his wife for his son must not be from among the Canaanites. As another command that Abraham gives here. This, of course, harkens us back to the curse given by Noah in the primeval narratives in, in chapter 9, verse 25. Cursed be Canaan. See, Abraham does not want for his son a wife that will quickly bring a curse upon him or cause him to turn from the covenant, nor does he want his son to leave the promised land. So this is why he demands that the servant swear to him as his master or by his position as a servant, but 
not, not as his master or by his position as a servant, but he has the servant swear to him by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. See, Abraham wants a wife for his son Isaac so that the covenant may be lived out. The blessing may continue. The promise may endure. And this is where we see that generational faith is the objective of covenant faith. Generational faith is the objective of covenant faith. Now by this, I obviously do not mean it is the sole objective, as the sole objective of covenant faith is to worship God the Father. But what I mean by this is that generational faith is then to be our goal so that that covenant worship and that reverence and that awe and that relationship with the one true God is continued from generation to generation. You see, all of Abraham's actions here are rooted in his desire to live out his covenant relationship with God in faithfulness so that then that covenant relationship will be carried on in Isaac. And so why does he want Isaac to have a wife? So that Isaac can carry on that covenant faithfulness to the next generation. Going all the way back to his original call, we can see that God had always planned for Abraham to just be the starter, the originator of what he was preparing to do through him. Again, Genesis 12, and we see at Abraham's call, I will make of you a great nation, which means that there will be many more to come after you. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham, having his servant swear by the Lord God of heaven and earth, is for the purpose of rooting his servant's oath and mission as part of God's greater plan to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. See, Abraham exhibits tremendous faith as he then sends his servant away on mission, but as he also gives him a blessing to be free from his oath if he does not find a wife. Now, why? Why would he do that? Why would Abraham give his servant even the possibility not to return? Because Abraham knows that God is faithful. He is confident that this will not come to be. He has heard it said by God's word and God's word alone from his call that he would be made a great nation. And so he knows that God will provide a wife just as God has provided a sacrifice, just as God has provided every step of the way since he walked in obedience to the call. So this is why Abraham is confident that this servant will return with a wife because Abraham knows that God is faithful. God's covenant with Abraham was expressly purposed to be lived out and passed on from generation to generation. You see, now we're getting down to the root of why this part of Genesis, uh, of the Genesis narrative is called the patriarchal narrative because it explicitly deals with how God fulfilled his covenant to Abraham from generation to generation. As we will see through the rest of the series from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, God Almighty, El Shaddai, is the one working to accomplish his plans and purposes to spread the knowledge of his glory on the earth as his people enjoy his grace. This is why upon declaring the Sinai covenant to the people, Moses declares this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We read this in Deuteronomy 6. You can turn there if you'd like or you can look on our screens or just make a note of it. But in Deuteronomy 6, Moses declares this to the people after establishing the covenant at Sinai. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. But that's not where they're to stay. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Or as we also read in Psalm 145, 
Psalm 145, if you take notes, you can just write that out to the side. I'll read it for you and it'll be on our screen. Psalm 145, verse one. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. But verse four, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So the psalmist here is not simply just declaring God's praise to God alone, but he's saying, I praise you that I may then declare of your wondrous works to the next generation. Verse five, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall bring aloud of your righteousness. See, general, generational faith is the objective, the goal, the purpose of covenant faith. That is why I am so thankful for all those who serve throughout our church family to raise up the next generation of saints, to boldly enter a dark and dying world with God's glory as their goal. That's why nursery care is so much more than child care. That's why our caboodles and our children's Sunday school classes are so crucial. That's why when I look at our Wednesday nights and I see that this last Wednesday we had more students in attendance at youth group than we did adults, I'm not worried. I'm elated because that is our goal. That's why I love seeing our Sunday school classes full of multi-generational saints eager to study God's word together. I tend to be early everywhere I go. It's a habit which has caused great stress in my marriage. (laughs) I kid, but not really. Anyway, so I get here early just about every morning and Every Thursday, we have a group of men, different ages, different stages of life that are faithful to gather together to really dig deep in their faith and expand their knowledge of God's word. And they've been going through J.I. Packer's uh, A Concise Theology. And I absolutely love to hear the summaries of all the conversations they have and where they've delved into that morning. And just this last Thursday, Ronnie commented to me how he loves it when they bring up a difficult question or a topic that some of the men have never even thought of before. And Max will comment, we talked about that last night in youth. How great is that? This is what it means to be the people of God, to live out our faith in community, to appreciate, love, and respect the generations that have come before, all while pouring everything that we have into raising up the next generation to send them out on mission for the glory of God and to equip parents to do the same. Because moms and dads, this is the call for us as parents, for our homes to be the primary place where faith is passed from generation to generation. And this is what Abraham is wanting to see as he sends his servant out to find Isaac a wife. He doesn't want Isaac to leave the land lest he be tempted to never return or lest he break the covenant. He doesn't want Isaac's wife to be from the depraved and cursed Canaanites, lest she bring a curse and drag Isaac away from his covenant. So the servant arrives in the land. As we move through the chapter, we see the servant arrive in the land where Abraham told him to go. And he prays that the Lord would help him fulfill his oath and find Isaac a wife. And he comes to a well. And he prays that the Lord would make it clear who the woman is by natural means, not some supernatural beam of light. And he doesn't pray that God would just illuminate the woman or or anything like that. He says just simply by natural means that this woman would show hospitality and humility by providing him water and offering water for his camels. And so if you're familiar with this story, you know that the Lord answers this prayer through a woman named Rebecca as she does just that. She shows hospitality and humility. So the servant goes through the cultural process of of having the blessing of Rebekah's brother, Laban, send her to be married to Isaac. 
And so as we move along the story, we see the lineage of Abraham listed in chapter 25. You can skip to, to chapter 25, verse 19, showing us the shift of how God now continuing to fulfill the covenant no longer in Abraham, but just as he promised through Abraham's descendants. So we read this in chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So just as his mother, Sarah, was barren, for so many years until the Lord fulfilled his covenant promise through Isaac, so too is Isaac's wife, Rebekah, barren. And what is the response of Isaac to this common situation for so many families? He goes to the only one who could do anything about it. He goes to the Lord. Isaac knows that if the covenant is to be fulfilled and the faith continued to be passed on rightly, he will need a son. So this adversity presses him into deeper reliance upon the Lord's provision and faithfulness. And the Lord answers his prayer. And now this is where we see the importance of faith being passed down from generation to generation. And this is where we see God's design in covenant faith having as its goal the growth of faith from generation to generation. As Abraham passes away, if he had not been faithful to live out the covenant faith despite his depravity, then the covenant and the faith dies with him. However, since this is God's goal and God's design that generations of Abraham would be blessed, we see the importance of Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And we see Isaac displaying generational faith by throwing himself at the mercy and grace of God in the midst of adversity and uncertainty. You see, what we learn here is that generational faith must be cultivated See, generational faith is not something that we just, well, I'll live out faith in front of my children and they'll learn. What do we mean by cultivated? To pass down true, lasting, enduring covenant faith, we must do so with intentionality and purpose. Meaning we cannot just assume knowledge of God and his word in the lives of our children. We have to intentionally and purposefully point them to it and guide them through it. Grandparents, you cannot just assume that your grandchildren are saints from birth. You must purposely and intentionally point them and guide them and pray them to the truths of God's word. Mommies and daddies, we cannot forego our responsibilities as the primary guides of our children's spiritual development. Because too often nowadays, we'll see parents approach their child's spiritual development the same way they approach their child's development as a ball player. In this scenario, we treat the programs of the church as specialized coaches that have the responsibility of training our sons and daughters or our grandchildren in the ways of the Lord. All the while, they'll never reinforce it at home except with the occasional pre-dinner prayer. In order for covenant faith to be generational faith, we must throw ourselves at the mercy and grace of God as parents as mommies and daddies, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, we must seek his guidance and discernment and his grace at all times. Then we have to live it out. We can't just say, Lord, help me with this child. It's in your hands now. And then walk away and then wonder, I don't know what I did wrong. No. Do we pray that prayer? Lord, I don't know what to do with this child. Sometimes I do. Absolutely. But then we get to work. And we start cultivating generational faith by modeling obedience. That's the first step, is we model obedience. We, we have to make sure that our faith is in check, that we are putting ourselves in God's word and letting God's word take root in our hearts. See, Isaac here throws himself at the mercy and grace of God in prayer because that's what he saw his daddy do. Abraham wasn't perfect. 
We've detailed that. In this same scenario, Abram and Sarah sought to have a child through Hagar, through their own wisdom and means, despite all that God had told them. Yet God showed grace and remained faithful to the covenant, and Abram repented and became Abraham. And this is what we see throughout Scripture. As we continue to press on in this story, we call God's Word our Bibles, that God faithfully and graciously establishes covenants and maintains covenant faithful, faithfulness with incredibly depraved and flawed humans for the very purpose of making an even greater display of His glory and grace, that we may pass on the knowledge of His glory and grace to the next generation. And so we read this in verse 22 of chapter 25. The children struggle together within her. She says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So as the children within her struggle... Rebecca cries out to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord reveals to her what he had already declared by his word, that two nations are within her. If you remember back in Genesis 17, as the covenant is sealed and God is revealing to Abraham that Sarai shall no longer be called Sarai, but shall now be called Sarah, he also makes this statement in Genesis 17, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Multiple. So thus we see this being fulfilled in Rebekah through Isaac. And once again, revealed by God's word. These two sons within her are Jacob and Esau. Indeed, they would grow to be at enmity with one another as Esau was born first, covered in red hair. And indeed, Jacob came out grasping his brother's heel. This would be the continued story of the two boys, as Jacob is a rendering of the Hebrew term, he clutches the heel. And so it would be that Isaac preferred the rugged outdoorsman Esau to the always playing catch-up Jacob. So this would be the story of the two, that Isaac preferred Esau over Jacob. Yet it would be Jacob that would be the one who God would choose to fulfill the promise through. Why? We'll turn to, to Romans chapter 9. And keep your finger there in Genesis. We'll, we'll get right back to it. But Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1, we see this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. Paul speaking, of course, to the church at Rome. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. So let's pause right there. So what Paul is saying here is, if it were necessary that I could be cast off so that my brothers, the Israelites, would realize the glory of Christ, that I would rather that. Because it is to them that the Christ came and it is through the patriarchs and what everything that God was doing from the beginning that through Israel would come Jesus. And so this is Paul's cry as we pick back up in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham. Because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So this is God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done, done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
she was told the older will serve the younger. And so through, Paul breaks it down for us here in Romans 9, but this is what we see is that although Jacob preferred the oldest born and as many fathers in this culture did, they preferred the firstborn son, God chose Jacob, the one who was always playing catch up, the one whose name also means deceiver as he would go on to deceive his brother. So God raised both Esau and Jacob for the purpose of displaying his glory and grace, but only one would receive the promise, not according to Jacob's ability, not according to Jacob's might or good moral standing, because we see none of that in Jacob as we go to watch his story unfold, but according to God's grace. And that is why we see God tell Israel when he rescues them for the purpose of fulfilling his promise. In Deuteronomy 7, God says this, Deuteronomy 7, he says this to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. You see, the Lord is at work here according to his purposes and works according to his purpose, not according to our understanding. Moses wants the people to remember their beginnings and that it is totally by God's grace that they have been chosen to be his people, to make his name known among the nations, not by any other means. You see, generational faith is also cultivated by leading them to God's word. That is leading the next generation to God's word. That is, that's the them there. See, it was God's word and God's word alone which led Abraham to follow in obedience. It was through his word that the Lord provided the promise. It was God's word which Isaac clung to as he prayed for God's provision. It was God's word which Rebecca sought an answer, an answer to the tumult inside of her. And it was God's word that we must lead our, and it is by God's word that we must lead our depraved hearts time and time again so that we can show those behind us where to turn for truth. This is what Isaac now has to do for his sons as he falls in the same trap that his father did. In chapter 26, Isaac goes on into a land. There's a famine similar to what we see with Abraham and Sarah's sojourn into Egypt. But the Lord appears to Isaac and tells him to to go. He says, do not go to Egypt Dwell in the land which I tell you. So he tells them to stay in the promised land. And as he's in, the, in Gerar, he lies to the leader Abimelech, just as his father did, saying that his wife is simply his sister so that he won't be killed. And the Lord reveals to Isaac that he, indeed, through him, the covenant promise would continue in his offspring. But why? Verse 5 there of chapter 26, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. See, it was because your father was faithful to pass the covenant on to you, and he was faithful to walk in obedience, that you now are to walk in obedience to me. We've detailed the times when Abraham struggled with his own flesh despite so clearly knowing God's word, but we've also seen God use Abraham's disobedience to bring him back to himself. And so, Corresponding to God's action and work, we've seen Abraham return in repentance, throwing himself before the Lord in worship and realigning himself with God's word. You see, generational faith must be cultivated by exhibiting a posture of repentance. As this is what comes to happen in this story is Isaac is sent away from Abimelech after Abimelech calls him out on his lie and he's sent away from Abimelech. In verse 23 and 25, we see he begins to leave and he begins to dig up wells as he's trying to find the wells that his father dug and he's trying to redig these wells that his father had dug. And in the land of the Philistines, we see this in verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him and the same night said, I 
and the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. This is chapter 26, verse 24. I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So what does Isaac do? Verse 25. He built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. See, a well was to symbolize a permanent place to seek water. As he was digging all these other wells, these other herdsmen were getting into fights with his herdsmen. And so Isaac continues until now. He calls upon the name of the Lord after the Lord reveals himself to him. He is sent away by Abimelech because he's grown too large. He begins to dig wells in honor of his father. Then, as we just read, the Lord promptly blesses him in fulfillment and faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham. So after displaying obedience to God's call and faithfulness, that is when the Lord blesses Isaac after he is repented because of his lie there to Abimelech according to his grace and faithfulness and choosing. So in response to this, Isaac builds here an altar and worships and digs another well. And what takes place after this moment is too cool. I, I, we have to see this. So Abimelech still presides over the region. Now this is the same Abimelech that had sent Isaac away because he'd become too powerful. Abimelech approaches Isaac in verse 28, and he acknowledges that the Lord's power and sovereignty and control of Isaac's life. He acknowledges this. A foreign king. A foreign king acknowledges the Lord because of the enduring faith displayed by Isaac. And Abimelech seeks to make a covenant with Isaac and leaves the next day in peace after swearing an oath to Isaac. Now remember, who's there observing all of this? Jacob and Esau are alive watching all of this. The lying, the sojourn, in obedience to the Lord, the well digging, the Lord's blessing, Abraham's response of worship and peace, excuse me, Isaac's response of worship and peace and his covenant with Abimelech. You see, church, generational faith must be cultivated so that when trials come or when their depravity causes them to struggle, they are equipped. I have this quote here from Vadi Bakum. Sending young people into the world without a biblical worldview is like sending a ball player onto the field without a playbook. Because what happens right after these events in verse 26? We transition to chapter 27 and probably the most famous story of these three characters. The story of Jacob tricking his blind and aging father Isaac into blessing him as the one who would carry on the covenant instead of the rightful firstborn Esau. And upon hearing this, Esau lets out a primal scream and says this in chapter 27. This is chapter 27, verse 36. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. See, Jacob's name, as I said earlier, means he clutches the heel, but it also means he cheats or steals. So looking back at our earlier point, God often chooses the least likely people to display his will, his glory, his purposes for the express purpose of bringing himself more glory and for making his glory known. And we are those least likely people. Look at us. We are deceivers. We are ones who are constantly playing catch up and cheating and stealing and worshiping ourselves over God. And yet he has shown the light of the gospel in our hearts. We see a scene similar to the scene we began with. Chapter 28, verse 1. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from a Canaanite woman. So this is Isaac on his deathbed. Now he's talking directly to his son, whereas Abraham sent his servant. Isaac is sending Jacob himself so that he can learn how to live out the faith and live out the covenant on his own. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethul, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Verse three, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. So God bless you that you may grow. Verse four, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. 
that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. So, whereas Abraham sent his top servant to find a wife for Isaac, Isaac, being notably passive in the process, Isaac sends Jacob to find a wife. And to this point, Jacob has seen his father's faults. However, he has also seen his father's faith lived out in some pretty incredible ways. Yet all we've seen from Jacob is a display of sinful deception and selfish pursuits. But as you look to verses 10 through 15, you'll see the Lord appears to Jacob and Jacob cries out in worship. Why? Because he's crying out to the wor- in worship to the God that he's watched his dad worship and repent to. You'll notice that each time one of the patriarchs walk in obedience to God's call or to the covenant promise and or blessing, that God then affirms his covenant with them and sends them according to his word. So in closing, how do we live as a church that's faithful to ensure that covenant faith is consistently becoming generational faith? How do we live as mommies and daddies, grandmothers and grandfathers, aunts and uncles that are spurning the next generation of Christ? We stand firm on the truth of God's word and we let it take root deep within our hearts and then we live it, we teach it, we breathe it to the next generation so that Southside would be known as a people of the book who send out people of the book who are both on fire for Christ and spread the light of Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, I thank you for granting us patience. As as I know, this morning's sermon was a little longer. But God, we thank you for the fruit and the truth that it can bear in our lives when we commit ourselves to cultivating generational faith. Not merely just bringing our children, our grandchildren to church in hopes that something will rub off on them, but for intentionally living out a life of faith within our families that the covenant may be passed on that they may know that it is El Shaddai, God Almighty, who is the one who created them, who knows them, who called them, and who called their mommy and their daddy, their grandparents, according to his purposes, so that we can live in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.